I believe if you are flexible enough, you are open enough, cinema should not be what it is now. Cinema should be what should not be what it is now. So the films that we are watching now in movie theaters are more or less similar. Even art house films now, they are more or less similar. There are very few new or novel uh, creations. So now my creation is more and more towards a museum. That's why. That's a reason. I hope audience can has a uh, mindset museum, which means very free. I think no other uh, creation of is more free than museum creation. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode nine of Conversations. I'm Eliana. And I'm Patrick. Hi. Hi. So for this episode, I chose the Cai Mingliang film, Visage from the 2009 Cannes edition. I first saw this film at a retrospective at the Pompidou, just actually just last year. And Timing Liang has been, well, his career has been exploding in every corner of the world. Cultural institutions are putting on retrospectives of his work, and he's being elevated as an auteur of Taiwanese cinema. Yeah, um, most recently we saw him uh, awarded in Locarno, right? That's right. He got a Lifetime Achievement Award at Locarno. And so I first was introduced to his films perhaps only two years ago when I watched Days, per your suggestion. It was a film that went through, was it Cannes or was it Oh, it was Berlinale. Uh, Berlinale. The Berlinale in 2020? 20, yeah. And... It was just very sensual, and so I thought, okay, they're going to have a retrospective at Pompidou, and they showed this film, Visage, which is actually one of his lesser-known films, and I was really just taken in by it. It was an aesthetic experience. It's very difficult sometimes to talk about his cinema because it's heavily fragmented, and there are a lot of abstract themes and a lot of people sometimes endearingly say that each scene can be viewed as an art piece in itself but I chose it because I really wanted you to see this film and I was wondering if you would be willing to give us a little bit of context of what was happening in 2009 at Cannes. I have to keep our audience in the know about these past uh, renditions of the festival and in 2009 I would say rather a big year for Cannes. So there was uh, when, among others, Andrea Arnold's Fish Tank played uh, with a late work of Alain René, uh, Wild Herbs, that I haven't seen yet, but it, it looks rather interesting. It looks like made by a young filmmaker, uh, despite him, I think, at that time being maybe 93 or so, so very old. Quentin Tarantino's Inglourious Bastards, that doesn't need any introduction. Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void, Lars von Trier's Antichrist. So a lot of strong competitors, I think, that here. Uh, jury president was Isabelle Huppert. Also part of the jury were Nuri Birgit who would later win the Palme d'Or. Same, no, same is not true for uh, Yi Changdong, but in any case, Yi Changdong, who, had, who has had uh, great films in Cannes and... Among them, one of my very favorites, uh, Burning, 
in 2018, I think. Yeah, and that year, The White Ribbon won by Michael Haneke. And yeah, there again, we can talk about how these affiliations sometimes might have an effect on which film is awarded uh, the grand prize because Isabelle Huppert was a collaborator, mm -hmm. of course, uh, of mm -hmm. Michael Haneke. But in any case, yeah, that was the main competition. But it's also notable that there were some bigger names in the other sections, right? Like in the Kanzen that year, uh, who was there among others, Eliana? Well, it seems like Xavier Dolan had a de his debut film, J'ai tué ma mère, and um, have uh, this Safdie's film, which I haven't seen. I Daddy haven't seen that either, yeah. As well as Francis Ford Coppola's Tetro. Yeah, so also one of his later works, I think. One film followed that, but we are ahead of his grand picture that we'll probably play next year, uh, the one that he worked on for decades and had to finance himself. We might cover that at some point. Who knows? I hope so. Uh, that maybe for next year's Cannes. Yeah, and in the Ancienne Regard, we have quite big names who would now most definitely play in the competition. We have uh, Bong Joon-ho's mother. We have Yogos Lantimos' dog tooth, Mia Hanselova's Le Père des Mes Enfants. And uh, yeah, and of course that connects great... Quite fittingly, yeah. Yeah, to our, to our conversation today. Who was restored among others uh, that year? So we have Truffaut's Les Quatre Cent Coups, as well as Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day, which is really kind of where this film by Simon Young, Visage, falls. In, in that space in the Venn diagram between Taiwanese cinema and an adoration for the Nouvelle Vague. And yeah, in quite fact, funny. Yes. In That's as if that was all planned along, you know? <laughs> like uh, we have the Quatre Cent Coups, and then <laughs> we have Visage that plays such a heavy homage homage as the americans oh. say <laughs> uh, to that film uh, it's uh, it's great it's great and i mean those are the prints that are the blu-rays that we, we can buy now they are based on so uh those quite an important can here uh, in that respect as well also antonioni's la ventura and uh godard's uh, piero le fou so it's uh yeah, I guess they all more or less entered the Criterion collection then. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I just take a look at the lineup at Cannes in 2009, it's still incredible. I think that would have been a, such a fun year to go. I personally love the restorations and so much style and pizzazz from all of these auteurs. Well, what a shame we weren't able to be there, <laughs> but perhaps there's there's still much more to come. You know, I think uh, legally we wouldn't have been allowed to be there because I think you have to be press and then you need to be above a certain age. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know be. if we could have even gone there. Even though I think this year we found out, right, that uh, at least for the, the Palme d'Or winner, mm -hmm. um, the Cannes locals, they can go there and get a ticket for free yes. uh, for the not the last day of the festival, but actually the day after the festival ends so yeah. on, on Monday, I guess, right? Yeah, I believe they just line up at the mayor's and then they can get a ticket to the winning film of the Palme d'Or. Or that is what they told us when we encountered some a lovely queue of people who were just 
telling us that they're about to see anatomy of a fall. Right. And this as a reminder, we have, I think, already mentioned that during our original conversations in Cannes, but let yourself not be discouraged from wanting to go to Cannes because uh, these side sections, you can really get tickets for free. If you just go there, show up and go to the uh, ticket counter, you will, and I, I think you can even do, do it online and then you get tickets for the Kanzen, for instance, also the director's fortnight and these other smaller sections. So just don't think that you need to be press accredited or something. There is still a lot of, to explore and relatively, of course, the Airbnbs or your accommodation, that's the expensive part. But if you just want to go, if you have the resources to do so, then yeah, do that. It's, it's, it's a nice experience. Mm. But any case, so today we talk about Visage and mm -hmm. this, I guess, to give us some context, we wanted to talk a bit about the filmmaker uh, himself, uh, Simon Yang. And what you said earlier is interesting that uh, Visage is among his lesser known works and uh, certainly true. But uh, when it comes to France in particular, where of course I hope we have some listeners as well, uh, that is not necessarily the case because Visage... Uh, is so heavily influenced by the Nouvelle Vague and pace, uh, so clearly homage to it. But yeah, uh, Tsai Yang. Uh, who is Tsai Yang, Eliana? Who is Tsai Yang? So Tsai Yang was born in 1957 in Malaysia. However, he has lived the majority of his life now in Taiwan and is, and is often referred to as a Taiwanese filmmaker. He originally started his career in television and he has a very strong background in theater as well. Many of his works feature longtime collaborators. When we think of Tsai Mingliang's films, we think of the actor Li Kangsheng and really there he, he has an almost ideal muse director relationship with this actor and it's... Um, something that has spanned from the early original uh, TV programming from I don't know, 1989 to his most recent film that he's done, Days. And since doing Days in 2020, he's also worked with Li Kangsheng to create some art installations. And so Tsai Mingliang is really a, a multidisciplinary artist in some sense, kind of like a Pichipong Virasetakul, a Thai contemporary. And um, yeah, and maybe uh, it's worth going a bit back as well uh, to his upbringing because I think it is notable. He's a son of a farmer, and he got his cinematic education through his uh, grandparents, who would take him to the movie theaters often, where he would see Taiwanese films, Chinese films, Hong Kong films. Hong Kong films, in particular, they are very popular uh, in other Asian countries. Uh, uh, in Taiwan as well, where uh, they would of, often compete with the Taiwanese cinema and they for a long time had struggled to uh, to be on par with them. And it's interesting that he says that his upbringing was very much dominated by slowness, like how mm. his life went on slow in a way that he had a lot of time to just at his free disposal so he could sort of figure out what he's interested in and just explore his interests really. And then 
you wonder where the parallels lie to his filmmaking mm -hmm. that is very much in line with what people consider slow cinema. Mm -hmm. uh, so this passage of time was really part of his upbringing, this like conch, uh, like this awareness for that. And uh, yeah, going to Taipei for his studies of uh, film and drama, it was also really, he, he was urged by his father to do that. Uh, and mm -hmm. he was really uh, sort of kicked out in the world. <laughs> It's a definitely interesting blend of working class yet having exposure to the cinema world and this, I suppose, straddling of that and how it represents itself in his slow cinema, as you say, because I find often when people contemplate about time or the passage of time, there's some, there, there, there are so many different ways that people theorize about what or how time is portrayed whether it's something that is for the bourgeoisie or whether it is also in terms of things that take such a long time to do and having the time to actually waste or to spend right or if it's also considered something that is more mm, uh, what's the word that having so much time is luxury essentially which is somewhat ironic given that we have also if you portray, but we shall talk about that later. Ironic, given that if you portray uh, people who are working class, their time is not necessarily the, the, the time that they have to so-called waste or to spend, not always viewed as luxurious. So that middle ground, mm -hmm. I suppose, is interesting in how it appears in a cinema. Yeah, and there's a uh, background, this background of cinema that's even apparent in his first gigs for the local stages in, in Taiwan when he had, for instance, I think his first piece called, like there are different names out there in the internet. I think there's something more specific about peanut noodles or something, but yeah, <laughs> it's basically called instant noodle and it's about a young boy who spends all his money on mm. uh, fe uh, festival tickets, uh, film festival tickets. And it's also about dreaming and dreaming about cinema and of course this is a theme that we will see later is like forms a thread through his career as a director and yeah of course when we talk about him we just need to give some background just talk about the new Taiwanese cinema we, we're both I think we're, we cannot call ourselves experts on that unfortunately no but it is notable that he is sort of as with Valeska Grisebach last year, he's not the first, but the second generation of a sort of movement. And uh, this is the new Taiwanese cinema, whereas Grisebach was uh, like the Berlin School filmmaker, uh, second generation, more or less, I would say. And here in 1982, it's most notable for uh, the Taiwanese cinema, the Central Motion Picture Corporation, they started to support young aspiring filmmakers. And so people like Edward Yang and this guy whose name I can never pronounce, uh, Hu Xiaoxian. Exactly. And they mm. were given money to experiment a bit and to bring to life a cinema that is more evocative of everyday life concerns of uh, Taiwanese people and I think this is also what uh, Simon Yang has always been interested in, in like the 
common man and the everyday life and how to capture that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely a tendency for first iteration of Taiwanese cinema to tend towards understanding how the generational, the very confusing, because Taiwan is very complex in its political relations with China, as well as just post-war and the Kuomintang fights and how it, it also has its own indigenous people. Um, and Taiwan has also been occupied by the Dutch, by the Portuguese and by the Japanese. And so we can see that perhaps in certain areas, so following World War II and Japanese occupation of Taiwan, which inevitably gave it its stronger educational and transport infrastructure. However, it distanced it in another sense. Taiwan is sometimes viewed as a cleaner or more modern version of China. And we also have territorial disputes that go in both directions, which is a very simple way of saying that in terms of nationality and ideal ideas behind belonging, it's very confusing for those who live in Taiwan and thus People who also live in Hong Kong also face similar disruptions to perhaps their perceived identity or national identity. Yeah, and this was still in 1982 when this new phase of filmmaking started. Those were still years where the political landscape was rather unstable, right? We are working toward democracy here, but that wouldn't really be established until 1996. So... All these years are still sort of, it's an experimental ground almost uh, that is also reflected in the filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And it's um, very interesting because then we have different ways. I mean, Ho Xiaoxian is known for his period pieces to, to a degree. Um, one that I really like is called Three Times, where we see different iterations of the same actors who play a couple in completely different time periods. But we sense this this dependency and this desire to break free, but also this impossibility of doing so in the relationship. Yeah, and I think period pieces, of course, they are always somewhat like impossible, right? You want to capture a time or a zeitgeist that is doomed to be wrongly depicted or falsely depicted, misleading. But of course, it's always interesting to see how people look at these times. And I think when we talk about this new Taiwanese cinema, the first, the very first film of that movement is In Our Time mm -hmm. and made by four directors, among them Edward Yang. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, this is somewhat presumptuous, right? To say like In Our Time, like who are we? Who is talking here? Mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, an honest attempt and a sincere attempt to get at something, to get to uh, capture this moment in time. And just the word time seems to be so crucial for these Taiwanese filmmakers, especially also to uh, Tsai Min Yang and his project. Mm -hmm. and, and it's very intriguing. I mean, I really do. This has made me want to explore Taiwanese cinema more because it's very clear that each Artur also has a very different way of digesting their time. I think Ho Xiaoxian is very good at atmospheric, at, at creating atmospheres. Edward Young takes an observational approach that is very witty in terms of dialogue and just situations. And I would say that Tsai Ming Liang, he's, he also, he pushes that entire idea of what 
inner time means by placing absurd moments that get to the, the crux of perhaps what is actually just just something something he, he he goes he does the whole entire okay we're going to look at something over here that is not necessarily a part of one's natural lived reality but just makes sense in its absurdity to speak to the natural life of how someone might interpret their day-to-day actions as as a and, and to bring reason to it or that's at least how i see it <laughs> If that makes sense or yeah and really perhaps a like getting rid of all unnecessary um, narration right it's really rather a cinema that is devoted to the moment uh, than devoted to an ongoing mm-hmm. um, narrative experience right and of course these um, outlines or this delineation of a sort of Mm, continuation of a first and a second generation that only leads you to uh, so far as so often with these uh, classifications are because of course Edward Yang and all the others they would continue to make films in mm-hmm. more recent decades mm-hmm. and uh, and Ang Lee as well who's yeah. also more a part of the second exactly. generation of new Taiwanese cinema certainly the most successful mm. uh, like just commercially Mm -hmm. uh, speaking yeah and there was also a lot of collaboration between uh all these filmmakers so uh he would also uh just be uh, a script writer for other projects that you wouldn't necessarily uh, associate him uh, if you're not familiar with uh, the movement uh, overall yeah Simon Yang, he always was sort of regretful that this first generation, they didn't really create, or like they didn't really had an impact to that extent that it would, a new sort of cinephile audience would emerge mm. uh, in Taiwan. And I think he did a lot to, to sort of nourish that uh, cinephilia he would for his own films he would mm-hmm. he would sell on the streets his own tickets <laughs> <laughs> even after being fairly respectable you know he would be on the streets in taiwan and sell sell stuff i mean he's also just uh he has experiences in selling stuff in general i think he can in in interviews he tells that he sold different things just as a street vendor right i i forgot what exactly it is but in one of the films we saw by him, uh, it's mm-hmm. also about a, a a clock vendor, right? Right, yeah, a watch, a watch, a watch vendor. vendor. What, in what time is it there? Exactly. Yeah, and then in 2000, he also uh, established his own uh, production company to be more in control of uh, the distribution and the production of his own films. So since then, I think all his films have been produced by his own production company. And there we can also see that his collaboration with his muse, Li Kangsheng, has also... Yeah, has also also transferred into other aspects, I I think, into other other working (laughs) aspects. Because I was watching Afternoon... Um, which is something that was made in 2015, which just features Tsai Mingliang and Li Kangsheng talking 
in their new abode, <laughs> they essentially, around that time, decided after Stray Dogs came out in 2013 that due to impending health concerns, both on Tsai Mingyang's behalf and Li Kangsheng's behalf, he has, Li Kangsheng has a bad neck. Tsai Mingyang, I think he has, in, in recent years, developed a type of anxiety-like attack or syndrome. And they lived together in, in, a, in a mountainous region in Taiwan. And it was a very interesting sort of both interview and presentation of the two. I think there are a lot of rumors often about the type of relationship that they have. And um, none of them, and, and, and Tsai Mingliang was trying to dismantle some of these as well as just talking about, no, when people see us, they only see us going through the festival circuit. They just think that we are, and I am an, I am a director and you are my actor. But really, our relationship goes so much beyond just that. It was it's quite endearing to see this interrogation also and how different the two are. Should I continue or no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I also heard about that uh, film and I would like to see that because I... I'm just uh, into that sort of stuff. People just talking at a table. I really like this film. Uh, what is that called again? Uh, my my friend Andre. What oh, is? Oh yes. Oh gosh. My dinner with Andre. My dinner with Andre. Yeah. I I really like those kind of films too. And mm -hmm. here, of course, we have something more truthful. It's not really narrative, I suppose. But uh, no, it it it's not really narrative. But it's uh, I mean. There's so many different ways to go with that, but with their relationship, which is so essential to Tsai Mingliang's whole entire oeuvre, because essentially without Li Kangsheng, he probably wouldn't have any films. And this is something that he also contemplates and something that he also brings to the conversation with Li Kangsheng. Yeah, and it seems uh, it's often compared to Truffaut and uh, Jean-Pierre Léo, mm -hmm. but I think this might go much deeper, right? Yes, in in some sense. I mean, Tsai Mingliang essentially found Li Kangsheng, I believe, on the streets. And what he liked the most about Li Kangsheng was that he resembled his father. There was something about the way that he smoked that resembled his the way that his father smoked and also his physical appearance. And also as a person, Li Kangsheng is very sort of removed. He's not very emotional. He's a bit, he's a bit distant. And he has said that, which is why Visage kind of came about. But in terms of the Truffaut and Jean-Pierre Léaud relationship, he wonders whether Truffaut would have continued this muse-director relationship well into the current age that Jean-Pierre Léaud is. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to as Truffaut died. And so in ways, he's trying to capture that. And he believed that Jean-Pierre Léaud still has such a such an endearing face and that he wanted to, I mean, this really is bringing us back to our film Visage, but... Uh, yeah, maybe just about his own conceptions of theater, uh, of mm -hmm. cinema. So he's, as we said, heavily inspired by the Nouvelle Vague, especially Truffaut. But there's also the new German cinema, uh, especially, of course, uh, Fassbinder, also Antonioni on, and uh, Bresson. So those people are very important to him. And when we talk about him as uh, really an auteur of world cinema, 
should be noted that in his home country, uh, I think Visage had only an audience of 15,000 people mm. uh, and he aimed at 40,000, which doesn't seem like, you know, that seems to be a very conservative uh, estimation, but it didn't even go there. So that just tells us that if we think about Simon Young, we have to think about him more like in the European context. Because I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't even think about North America. Of course, there are, you can see his films then at, at MoMA or maybe at Lincoln Center, but, uh, you know, that's a very specific audience. And yeah. In Taiwan, where they have the Golden Horse Film Festival, and in Hong Kong, where they have the International Film Festival, Visage was able to pick up quite a few awards, but primarily for cinematography, art direction, costume, right. and set design, essentially, or production. But but of course, those awards, they hardly finance your it's next true. film. It's true, it's true. So he's yeah. really uh, dependent, especially in the past, he has been uh, depending on uh, especially French money mm -hmm. uh, to make his films. But uh, one last thing about uh, Simon Young, and then we can transition to Visage is that he's really on this intersection between mm, cinema, theater, and the museum, mm -hmm. basically, as a, as a space of mm, exhibition. And he is skeptical about the traditional cinema as like a, the cinematic apparatus as, as it is called in uh, cinema theory. And he is rather of the opinion that uh, this old notion of the dark theater as a collective space, that this sort of has to go to save the films. And yeah, that's why certain films and video installations of his, they were shown in different sort of settings uh, as Visage as well. I think Visage was shown in the biggest not traditional theater but uh in a big new center in taiwan and this made people perhaps reconsider how a film is to be presented and how to see films in new environments and settings and yeah i think he always thinks about the the positioning of the spectator as well i think those are active concerns active and ongoing concerns of his yeah, but perhaps, uh, yeah, visage, let's go into it. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's very interesting because I think also I've heard him say that he sees the act of filmmaking not to be that undifferent from the act of watching a film. And in terms of being at the forefront of trying to, I suppose, constantly reinvent one's viewing experience as visage was originally commissioned by the Louvre, so we're in 2009 or 2005, actually, that the project was first proposed. The director at the time of um, of the Louvre is in charge. I, I can't remember his name I right now. It's Henry Loyette or Loyotte. Ah, yeah, yeah, or sort of, yeah. He's uh, in charge of starting a handful of different campaigns in order to try to reinvigorate the population of people who would come to visit the Louvre. I mean, we have the expansion of the Louvre happening, uh, Louvre Abu Dhabi, right. <laughs> starting around the 2009 time or a little bit earlier or later. And I don't know about that, but I do know that uh, that the painting 
that inspired this film that we talk about that this is currently in Louvre Abu Dhabi. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. That's a nice little <laughs> fact. <laughs> yeah. If you are interested in this film, please go to the Louvre Abu Dhabi <laughs> to go <laughs> see the painting. Than that, yeah. And so one of the biggest concerns of museums in general, as you're as with cinema, is simply just getting people who go to the museum. I mean the majority of museum goers or people who go to the Louvre, I believe, the statistics allegedly say that 80% of them want to just see three things. The Mona Lisa, of course, the Victoire de Samatras, the Samatras Victory, the winged aye, Nike, aye. Nike mm -hmm. essentially, and then the Venus de Milo. And this is not great if you're thinking that you are a museum with about eight miles worth of, of, of art on display, which is only about actually 8% of the entire collection. That is what Simon Young did. So from the period between 2005 and around 2008, he spent three years trying to research the Louvre. The Louvre was very clear in that even though it commissioned this film, as it was trying to introduce the seventh art filmmaking. Yeah, and thereby sort of elevating its status, exactly. right? Exactly. Elevating its status and trying to expand into more contemporary works. So he spent three years researching the Louvre. The Louvre said that they didn't want uh, to be overt um, promotional material for the Louvre. And this is reflected both in Tsai Liang's natural style, which features lots of secluded areas, underground spaces, tunnels, claustrophobic places that are kind of inherent to one's life in Taiwan, things, places that are dark, places that are wet. And he... Dark, wet, yet smoky. Yes, dark, yet wet, yet smoky <laughs> spaces. And, um, and the film was originally supposed to be a version of the myth or story, depending on how you'd like to look at it, of the biblical heroine or femme fatale, also, depending on how you like, you prefer to see her, uh, of Salome or Salome. And the way he familiarized himself with the myth of Salome was uh, encountering the Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci painting, uh, St. John the Baptist. Uh, and only then it was when he, yeah, found out about the myth. And then this was sort of a persistent idea that more and more took over his mind. But uh, of course, you could say the even earlier entry point was just a sort of lifelong dream, I suppose, <laughs> to to bring together on screen in one frame uh, Jean-Pierre Leo, his childhood dream, like his childhood hero, to whom he would, as he recalls himself, rather entertain a like parasocial friendship you know he would see him on the screen and rather consider him his friend as like a an idol of, of cinema or something yeah and to unite uh, Jean-Pierre Leo and uh, Li Kangsheng in one frame that was sort of the starting point there mm -hmm. I mean the word visage is also such a a beautiful word because in French, at least, visage can be face, which is the English title. 
in Chinese it's lian, but visage can also just mean sort of appearance. So right. you can have a visage on your face. <laughs> which... Yeah, and this especially with uh, reference to uh, Jean Pierre Leo, this is very much true, right? Because uh, to to Tsai uh, Minyang, he represents cinema. So he's the he's the face of cinema, but at the same time, he's also this face of his sort of friend. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Going even more into that, just the idea back into the the idea of preserving, the idea of conserving, conservation, which and is the very nature of cinema. Exactly, because when you shoot someone, you have them in a moment, and you've preserved their image, you've preserved their visage, you've preserved so many things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, no, that's good, and. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned that this was a rather long process and this was this went so far that at certain points he felt this was overburdening and he didn't know how to go along with this. And then his mother died and that was a pivotal moment uh, for his process and I guess in a way that also shaped his vision because then motifs of mourning entered the overall tone of the film. Yeah, and it was also somewhat very fitting because going off of this muse and director relationship, a lot of people maybe mistakenly think that Li Kangsheng might be an alter ego of Tsai Ming-yang. That's something that Tsai Ming-yang actively rejects. The earlier film, What Time Is It There? of 2001, was created because... Li Kangsheng's father had just passed away and it was Tsai Mingliang's sort of, not gift, but something, way of giving something back to Li Kangsheng that he couldn't experience, that it, or that he could only experience through cinema. And many of the films too also feature quite autobiographical details, specific primarily to Li Kangsheng's life. Yeah, and even here, right? Because some people may not know, but... Uh... He is an actor turned director, so he has made his own films as well, or at least film. I'm not sure about the plural here, but he did make at least one film. And that means that he was familiar with the sense of being a director and with the notion of being a director. That was not foreign to him uh, when playing this role. And also with regards to our project here, our podcast project. So this is at least the second film of our main episodes uh, that is about a director. Are you suggesting that our conversation choices are in direct conversation with one another? Very much indeed, yes. And also in conversation are his films themselves, right? We have basically a Simon Young universe. Mm-hmm. I really regret not having been able to see all of his films. He has made a total of perhaps 47 so odd films, but this is including the shorter films and some of the art installation video works that he has done or time-based media works that he's done. He technically has a 11 film oeuvre of feature films, which start with so Rebels of the Neon God in 1992, Today's of 2020, and some other very, very just well-loved films include Vive l'amour, the hall, the river, goodbye dragon inn, and what time is it there? Yeah, and 
often these films are about the cinematic experience too and how it's sort of vanishing, especially, of course, in uh, Goodbye Dragon Inn. But uh, you will notice once you see two or three films of his uh, that there are re resurfacing themes. I also like just when you look at uh, Li Kang Shang and you see all the characters he has portrayed over the years. Sometimes it seems like it's exactly the same person. In their profession, they sort of evolve. You know, they could technically be the same person still. Over the years, he has been uh, a funeral niche salesman. Uh, he has played an actor who auditions for a porn film. He has been a cinema projectionist in Goodbye Dragon Inn. He's been a porn actor, so could see maybe here he has been uh, uh, successful now. <laughs> and uh, he was also a migrant worker in Malaysia, a film director now in Visage. So <laughs> there is quite an abundance of different... I was just still thinking about the other things that you're saying and going off of the universe and, and how Li Kangsheng's actual home is often the set for the, the films. Ah, yeah. And the actors that portray his parents are often the same actors as well. Chen Mao and Lu Yiqing. So yeah, uh, Visage. So, Visage. Do you want to uh, acquaint us with the premise of Visage so we can dive more deeply into it? Okay, so the premise of Visage is it's a film arguably with it in film. This is done in an abstract manner, but a film about a Taiwanese director played by Li Kangsheng who goes to Paris to shoot a film on the myth of Salome. That is the essential premise. Over the course of the film process, he gets notification that his mother has passed away and he is, he is to return to Taipei and he returns with his producer, played by a longtime collaborator of Truffaut, Fanny Ardon. And he mourns for her before returning back to set to complete the film. One must imagine. Yeah. Things go a wire. And we'll talk about those a little bit. Yeah. And uh, as often uh, in his films, when there is this encounter with French culture, there's the language barrier. So uh, these people do not necessarily know how to understand each other uh, verbally so they have to find so to speak the language of cinema to do so there's an endearing scene that we can talk about later maybe but yeah uh to me this film was quite exceptional really just in terms of its form i think this is a film that wins me over just by form mm. uh, over everything else because i think what you said earlier that every image could sort of be taken just as the frame itself to sort of analyze. And I think that's very much true. I think I sometimes thought that this scene or this shot now requires a second or third viewing to just really get most out of it. And uh, yeah, I mean, these it's a very slow film. It's uh, slow cinema. And even among his films is one of his slowest uh, it has, and that's a bit technical here, but uh, it has an average shot length of 90 seconds mm. and only 10% of the shots are uh, 
feature a moving camera, so most of the images are static. And often, if it is interior, it sort of evokes like a surveillance camera aesthetic. So mm -hmm. often from a like higher angle looking down. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yes, so, so I think just in that sense, it's very rich. And often mm, I didn't quite understand the scene uh, in itself, but then it somehow links to the bigger, the greater picture here. But I also think that it's worth just looking at individual scenes. Uh, and it's really pleasing. It's visually pleasing, I think. Mm -hmm. I would have to agree. I think there is, this is, even though this is based off of the myth of Salome, which perhaps I'll just briefly, in its distilled form, is, a, as I said, a biblical character. However, Oscar Wilde in around in 1890s wrote a one-act play called Salome in French where we see him taking this biblical figure. She desires Yuanakan, who is also known as St. John the Baptist, and he doesn't desire her back. Her mother has remarried the brother of her father, and St. John the Baptist has been imprisoned for condemning this marriage. The uncle, Herod, now newly married to Salome's mother, Herodias, has eyes for Salome and demands that she dance for him. And is so... Uh, <laughs> taken the, in? Yeah, is so taken in and so desirous for her dancing that he offers her pretty much everything, or at least half of his kingdom... Anything that she wants. Blank check. Yes, a, a blank check. And Salome says, oh, okay, well, you know what? I will, if you really promise me whatever I want, I will dance for you. And so she dances in Oscar Wilde's version, which is not in the Bible at all. The Dance of Seven Veils, which Richard Strauss made very famous in his turn of the century opera. Then after dancing the dance of the seven veils. What does demands, she demand? <laughs> yes. Demands the head of Yuanakan or St. John the Baptist to be presented to her on a silver platter. And Herod, the, the uncle, is in shock, tries to give her more, more, uh, tries to ask if she would like something else. Maybe she'd like some jewels. Maybe she'd like something else will work nothing will work there's no compromise and she insists that she wants the head of saint john the baptist and thus she gets it and this story innately is about desire and misaligned desires i find and that's the thing that timing Nyang is able to capture again because his cinema often is about desire disconnection alienation claustrophobia whether sensual they're often these sensual takes just with food or items of food that engage one's senses. And in the story of Salome, Salome desires something that she cannot have. And when she finally gets it, she realizes that it's not exactly what it was perhaps that she desires. She, the, the first remark that she has is, oh, you're, you're so cold that she's holding the beheaded St. John uh, the Baptist. And... But she also has this, this idea too, but I have kissed you, I have desired you, and now I finally am able to lay my lips upon your lips, 
even though your face, your body is not there and you are cold, I have been able to conquer you. And there are other things that could be talked about if one wishes in terms of, she then says that her virginity is lost. But this is something that can all be interpreted and reanalyzed in a different context, which I also would be very curious to see how this works in Simon Young's version of this. I don't even know how you view it. I personally think that he's taken this myth, this story, and he's completely torn it apart, which I think is for the better because he's reconstructed it in his own way. Yeah, it's a bit like, uh, it's a bit like Angela Schanelik's uh, music that played uh, this year. I think that comes now to North America at TIFF, uh, But yeah, that premiered at Berlin this year and there she also took the myth of Oedipus but only reduced it to sort of fragments that you can still sort of recognize. But she predicates our knowledge of the myth and of the text. There are only little hints to the story, but now she's trying to maybe thereby create an a more active viewing experience mm -hmm. that we have to connect the dots mm -hmm. ourselves. Mm -hmm. Like you said earlier, there is no absolute logic in seeing this narrative as I believe the original film was even to be called Salome, but luckily and probably ideally this title, the title was changed to Visage because I think that is also more apt for the film. Yeah, there were so many different versions, I think, of this. There was also a version where... Uh, Li Kangsheng uh, would again play a, a street vendor now to sell um, uh, Eiffel Towers, oh, yes, little, little, Eiffel little Eiffel Towers, towers. <laughs> yeah. thus would meet Jean-Pierre Léo. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so yeah, and yeah, I, I think it took him such a long time to figure that out. But I think it is a great choice of him not to show us again and again these like grand halls of the Louvre, even mm -hmm. though he does as well with this one bigger shot there, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But it's really more about the underlying structure that no one ever gets to see at the Louvre, like the pipes and the technicians' rooms and mm -hmm. what have you. It's it's really, I, I think this is exactly, you know, if you, when you think about this prerequisite that there should not be an advertisement for the Louvre, mm -hmm. it it really isn't, right? Because mm -hmm. you hardly see the Louvre, in fact. And I, I think if you are not familiar with the Louvre, you might not at all n know that this is the Louvre because you will never really see it like yeah. the pyramid or you don't yeah. see the name of the Louvre ever mm -hmm. show up somewhere like so like if you're not at all familiar with the art world then you might not even realize I would also argue that even if you are familiar it might take you quite a while to recognize that you are in or at the Louvre because everything is done in such a tight space the only location that's really named is the, the Les Jardins Tuileries the Tuileries Gardens yeah which are just right outside of the Louvre. And then we see also the big fountain as well. Which Yeah, like if you have been to Paris, you have been to that fountain. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and allegedly one scene where some of these older stars of the Nouvelle Vague are present, they're apparently in the 
drawing room or dining room of Napoleon III. Right. Yeah. The dining room, I think. Yeah. Who's responsible for, of course, the Haussmannian expansion of Paris, mm -hmm. amongst other things. Yeah. But I think uh, it's easy to get sort of uh, confused mm -hmm. when seeing that film. And I must say, I was very confused seeing that. But I do think the film merits consecutive viewings and I think seeing some scenes the second time really helped me get a better grasp at what's going on here. Speaking about this realizing or not realizing um, the the setting, the location there in uh, before we recorded the podcast I told you that uh, so there are some scenes in the apartment mm -hmm. as you said that's the apartment of uh, of the protagonist as well as of uh, Li Kangsheng. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was all in Paris, you know, because uh, if you're just inside, of course, this is sort of an architecture or like that might speak more to an Asian um, setting. But at the same time, you have also Asian communities. Uh, there's even an entire arrondissement in Paris. And I thought... Uh, Maybe that's just set there, you know, and as long as you're just inside, you can't really tell. And of course, what uh, Simon Young is doing here, he plays with that as well. He sort of connects these two places. So there's continuity. There's the one pivotal scene that you might argue sets all things in motion, right? Could you maybe describe that scene with the water? Oh, yes. So we're in... Paris and then through the touch of a feather as if it's maybe I don't even know Proustian flashback or portal we're back in Taiwan and then we see that the Kangsheng's character is just going to the kitchen to turn on the tap and then the tap gets out of control and it starts sputtering everywhere and the way that I viewed this too within the context of Salome it's almost a different decapitation or there's a loss right. of control in some sense. Mm. And, uh, and of course, it's a very funny scene, right? And it is especially enhanced through this surveillance camera look yes. again. The surveillance camera look, this very long take. And Lee Kang-chung's character tries <laughs> multiple ways to try to stop or plug the, the, the leak, which is, goes out of control. And... He tries to put a bucket on it. He tries to get a bunch of towels. He goes back and forth to get more towels. He tries to go to the source underneath the sink and winds up further flooding the kitchen. And then we see him wading through the water as he passes by an aquarium tank <laughs> and goes into his mother's room where she's there lying as if she's a raft on her bed in a somewhat uncomfortably static way that suggests that she's ill right and uh if you are somewhat familiar with uh paris and its habits you will notice that in the morning there is always water running down the streets <laughs> yes. and this film depicts that as well so it shows us the streets of paris where the water is running down and through the way this film is edited you you might think, oh, this is all coming from the apartment because the apartment is really flooded. Mm -hmm. I, I actually don't know how they did that. Like, it's like it's really high, the water, mm -hmm. no, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's very high. It reminded me of Parasite. Oh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's true. Yep. It becomes a swimming pool 
essentially. And this is also water and flooding is also very common in in those areas where we have uh, typhoons and frequent flooding. And to me, this film is rather an experience that is dominated by little breadcrumbs that you maybe have to pick up or you leave them on the ground. But I think there's always something rewarding in uh, looking at these images more closely. Uh, I think the way he plays with overlayering, for instance, mm -hmm. is fascinating how sometimes you have one image, like the first shot, the very first shot of the film. Maybe we can talk about that a bit. Mm -hmm. You just sort of alluded to it, but I think uh, we didn't mention that this is the first scene. Uh, so he's uh, the our protagonist at first. He, he He's not even there, but we see an empty uh, table at a cafe and we hear people talking about a film production and we hear that an actor is missing. Uh, his name is Antoine. Mm -hmm. And then our director uh, sits down and when he sits there, we have sort of three images within one image. We have him sitting there, we have his background, and then we have the re reflection um, from the window because we see it all through a window. And this sort of reappears in this film and often has different effects. Sometimes it shows you the cityscape or the landscape. And sometimes it even, we will talk about that later, it divides our reality to some extent. And then this feather at that mm -hmm. moment falls down on his table mm -hmm. and there's sort of a match cut and then we are in Taiwan and there is a hanging line for the yeah. laundry. The and Pigeons go, they flutter up uh -huh. in the reflection of the street. And then we are, we see uh, this hanging line that's covered in feathers. And then we see something that's rather morbid. I mean, in my first interpretation of it, we see the mother chopping a bunch of meat <laughs> on a round wooden cutting board. And I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, is that pigeon meat? <laughs> that's the association mm -hmm. that I made. But I don't know if that was the association you made. Oh, no, no. I mean, it's there, right? And I mean, the way these... Feathers hang there on the line. It's also as if they were trapped or something. Yeah, as there's something <laughs> slaughterhouse-y yeah, about it. Yeah. But um, speaking of this meat mincing, mm -hmm. this is also great because, uh, so as we mentioned at some point, the mother dies and in a later shot, we see him hearing how his mother is mincing the meat. But mm -hmm. later, once the mother has died... He does the action now. He mm -hmm. minces the meat and we see the mother who's supposedly lying dead in her room. She is revived and she gets up, leaves the apartment, even has mm -hmm. little luggage with her and leaves the apartment. Mm -hmm. And I think this is very endearing if you pay attention really because now he's also forced to do it himself and... Uh, It's sort of this connection between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's um, a strong belief in ghosts and in the afterlife, taking care of our beloved relatives who have passed away. And also and, Truffaut, right? And also Truffaut. Truffaut's ghost is in here as well, right? Yeah, and Truffaut's ghost is in there as well, in, in a sense. But I, I thought it was also quite 
endearing to show this since we watched Visage first and then we saw what time is it there. And in Visage, it all sort of makes sense in terms of feeding those who are who are deceased and inviting them to the table to to just have a nice last or not even a last or just have a, a meal while they're in transition, I suppose. And how this also is very much a part of Asian cultures where people don't actually talk most of the time, but they just beckon their family members to come and eat or they wonder whether they have or haven't eaten yet. And yeah. so back to the ghost of Truffaut, there's an altar that's set up for the deceased mother. And this is going back to what you were just talking about in terms of how the framing is very interesting, because I think since we're so familiar with the space, he uses the space being Li Kangsheng's actual home in many different ways, but he frames it as if you can, and this could also be said of the Louvre as well, as if you're just seeing it for the first time in different variations. You're familiar, yet it's still novel. And at the altar, we see the aquarium um, and a huge pile of food that's been placed before and notably the aquarium has like a filter like a blue filter mm -hmm. so it's very distinguishable from the rest of the mise-en-scene mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um and then we have the producer who has followed xiao kang the director back home for the funeral of the mother who's just sitting there rifling through a Truffaut coffee table book right. and eating the offerings, which would be considered sacrilegious, but it's quite comedic. And she's joined through audio and, and, and a hand that comes through the frame to eat with her. Right. And there's this sense that I find could also lead to another conversation of just Occident Orient. <laughs> don't know if we really want to tackle this, but I find it's quite unique, just the idea of being invited by and commissioned by the Louvre to make a film and to engage directly with French cinema, French great cinema, the older generation of actors that are no longer being filmed or have as much attention, especially Jean-Pierre Léod, and finding that space of conversation between what it means to visit the other country and to be imposing one's cinematic style or one's culture or one's reference points while also still paying homage to them and still also looking at them and saying and parodying them in some sense. I don't know if you got that that sense from the film that there was a just a sense of alienation to the place, but also great appreciation as if one couldn't necessarily understand this culture, these French people, what are they doing in some of these scenes? That And sometimes I think their behavior was ridiculous, almost or parody versions of themselves. I think I saw that in other films, but in this one, not so much. Maybe, yeah, there's this dinner scene between these three women, I think, when mm. dad comes out in the most, like in the clearest way, but... I think I saw that more in this um, "What Time Is It There" film, for instance, when there is, for instance, a what do you call what do you call a, a phone that you have to pay, like a payphone? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yeah. When there's a payphone and there is on the like there are two payphones right next to each other, and there's mm -hmm. this 
French guy who speaks like who screams in a very cliche way so loudly that our protagonist just uh, backs off and <laughs> yeah. leaves. Uh, but uh, no, here I really I don't know. To me, it rather seemed uh, mm. homage. It's, it's funny because I would say that the scene where the producer is in the basement or in some storage area and they're mm -hmm. looking for the for the stag was also similar because she's on the phone too. Right. And she's also, what is she saying? She's saying, what do you mean you lost the, the stag? But well, why don't you go find it? But what's its name? Zizou? But is that call so... It, call it. <laughs> you think it's very French. But, but is that so French to you? I don't know. I, I That seemed very universal and even, even like film-like to me. You know, like yeah. there's always something missing on set. You always have to make sure that on time everything is where it's supposed to be. I but I think it was more the absurd reality of, oh, the, the, the stag is missing. What's its name? Zizou. Oh, call it. It will come to you. Call it. Why aren't you calling it? <laughs> okay. And I, okay. I don't know. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it's in any case noticeable that it's called Zizou. Yeah. Right? Like a national hero, one has to <laughs> yes. say in France. Uh, yeah. Zinedine Zidane. Oh my goodness. Uh, Zinedine Zidane for the people who are not so yes. into football or soccer. Yes. If you like. Uh, but just still staying in this one scene with the aquarium, I think we mm -hmm. didn't really speak <laughs> no, about its significance. So, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of spheres are divided here? I think it's a very important scene as well, no? I mean, it's one of these scenes where the living and the dead or the presumed dead coexist. One of these things that I obviously have a very soft spot for, for some yeah. reason. So do I. It's a bit like Uncle Boon Me like, no? Yeah, yeah, it's a bit Uncle Boon Me like, definitely. And, and it's really just so simple the way the camera divides these rooms. Like the one, the deceased mother, we see her through the blue aquarium. And mm -hmm. on the other side, we see the, is it the producer or? It's the producer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So And just so simple but you like it's really the language of cinema that you without any explanation you sort of get it you mm -hmm. sort of get what's happening here and yeah part of that scene is also that he has the sort of revelatory filmmaking that you often see something but then the scene goes on develops and it turns out to be a bit different so there, mm -hmm. it's a very minor detail but it's rather like mm, it's these apples that look perfectly perfectly colored, perfectly shiny from the outside. But then once they are grabbed mm -hmm. uh, on the bottom of of the apple, they're sort of green. Mm -hmm. There's this green spot that you don't see at first. And I think <laughs> he has a few shots like that, you know, mm -hmm. when they develop and he, they, they, they reveal themselves to be deceiving mm -hmm. to the, to the first, like to the first side. Mm hmm. Yeah, my favorite would have to be the disorienting scene in the Jardin des Tuileries where Jean-Pierre Léaud playing Antoine, who's also the name, Antoine is the name of the character in Quatre Cents Coups that he played when he was first picked by François Truffaut out of a lineup of a thousand boys, allegedly, to be the face of this iconic film that some people say is the greatest French film of all time. I have to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to give you my uh, 
opinion at a later point because I haven't seen it. <laughs> and so he's in this jardin and there are a lot of vertical mirrors that are placed against trees. And it's placed in such a disorienting way that reminds me of a painting that I need to find the name of and put it in here. Um, but it's unclear where things are coming from. And I just some of these scenes just speak so perfectly to what his cinema achieves just simply by achieving it through action in terms of understanding, as we were just talking about sharing screen space, literally between the living and the dead and how in and on just reality and non-reality and perception. So Jean-Pierre Léaud's character first looks to be off in the distance on the right hand of the screen and observing a stag and then tries to approach it and tries to beckon it towards it. And we see that the stag actually has issues as well mm -hmm. because we notice the first disruption through the long take where the stag bumps into the mirror. <laughs> and it's just, it's almost comical even because... Yeah. For me, I started reorienting how I was actually looking at the whole entire scene too and realizing I have no idea where the stag actually is either. And I wonder how that scene was just, I mean, I, I just think it's so perfect how, the, how that scene unraveled. But it also makes you think what kind of film is the director shooting there, no? I mean, yeah. we see these sort of musical numbers yes, and that's true. Uh, the stag even, right? Like it's just a prop basically yeah. for this scene it's in the background in the fourth foreground we have this uh model whose name is escaping uh, me Leticia Casta. yeah and uh so in in the film within the film he's playing uh Salome yeah she's playing Salome but uh it's what kind of film is that even like what kind of rendition of Salome is that supposed to be? And then yeah. so sometimes they're singing in Spanish as well. Yeah. Like what's going on here? As well as pop songs in Mandarin. <laughs> and um, there's something I, I think of it as rather camp, but only because it's so serious about itself. Yet there's some abstraction and some disconnect, but it all fits in some strange way. I don't know actually if this was jarring or how, how did you find these musical interludes? But yeah, I guess if it is camp, then it's Simon Young looking at himself and like making films because there is the scene when uh, the camera focuses via close-up on uh, our protagonist as he sees his recorded scene mm -hmm. uh, and he tears up he's really moved by the scene that mm -hmm. we before may have called camp mm -hmm. you know campy but he's very he's in and of course it's a bit um ambiguous maybe because you can also argue oh it's about his, his i don't know if at that point the mom is already dead but at least she's uh, severely ill uh, mm. at that moment already but it's I don't know. It seems like he's really taken in in, in that scene um, <laughs> by the thing he has just created. And mm -hmm. I think uh, that's funny in how we look at the scene and how he is looking at the scene. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there was an interesting um, observation that you brought up as well, that he looks very young in this scene when he's moved to 
tears, which come out very, very slowly. And um, that's just due to this. So I wonder if, if there, there is, uh, yeah, you have a good point in, in terms of understanding I don't know, this, this young affect that is possibly blessed onto the, 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 the director who looks even younger. And I find that in another scene as well, we have these almost hilarious moments where the model skin does not look natural enough and where he wants to alter the look of her skin to make it look more like jade and to make it look colder and to make it look translucent. And layered with the fact that she was lip syncing a Chinese song, (laughs) somewhat amusing. Uh And this is where I wonder, you know, where where the satire or the poking or the parody. Yeah, yeah, where does it begin Mm -hmm. in terms of all the films that have come from the West, which feature perhaps Asian face if this is, a, this is I don't think this is really a term term but just how it's almost the reverse and how in this scene the director Xiao Kang places literal ice cubes on her face <laughs> to try to cool down the look of this actress this model yeah and it's uh yeah and it's interesting how uh how that con contrast to a later scene because here we have the young actor to whom this is imposed, uh, this ice cube to to create this sort of color uh, on her cheeks. Whereas later uh, we see the sort of vanity of uh, the old uh, Jean-Pierre uh, Leo, mm-hmm. who's concerned about his his scar in, in his face, I th- yeah. think on his nose also. Yes, yeah. And uh, there... I think here is rather one of the more beautiful lines of this film where the makeup artist uh, tells him that rather than trying to hide these things, she tells him that it's better to impose on what we have than to than to than trying to hide it. And I, yeah, I think this is one of the more beautiful lines uh, in the film. Uh, and yeah, are there other things that we that you think we should still talk about? I, I think there is a lot, but are there something that we should not miss? If we haven't already talked about it, but perhaps we've touched upon it, just absurdity that acts as an undercurrent to all of Timing Young's films and his filmmaking process. I mean, one that I particularly liked in this film visually was when we see at some point the model. Well, there, there are just so many episodes. I mean, we haven't touched upon the taping. Of course, yeah. And one of the rather more mysterious parts of this film, I think, is there. So there is the actor of Salome who mm-hmm. has this obsession with taping, taping, taping off the light of a room, basically. So taping the windows. So not only her room, but thereby the what we see becomes darker and darker until blackness, really. And this is something that is picked up from an earlier Simon Young. I, I don't know if it recurs in many other films by him, but certainly in What Time Is It There, it plays a crucial part as well when the mother is doing it. So to sort of accommodate the re- return of the soul of the father who is and her husband who has passed away. He, oh yeah, no, tell me. Because the mother says that the 
husband or the father is afraid of light, and thus he's not going to come home if things are too bright. Here... Yeah, here it's sort of more enigmatic, right? Could you sort of... Could you come up with a, a theory on this taping? The way that I saw it, I mean, when I first saw it, I thought it was just very beautiful, very simple and very beautiful. There's a futility in that action, in this very simple and mundane action and insistence that one take a pane of light and they make it dark. And I think if we are only to see a few seconds of this action, there's there's nothing much to it. And it's perhaps just a, a little trick or it could be understood as this is what one does on set. They need to obviously play with lighting conditions in order to achieve the best circumstances to continue filming. But for this, it resonated with me as just exactly what I just said. It just is this absurd action that we must take. Perhaps there is too much light. And the way that she even does it too, with there maybe three or four episodes of her using black tape, what, twice on windows or three times on windows and once on a mirror, where she actually destroys her own reflection. Mm -hmm. uh, which also plays with the whole entire decapitation theme. Yeah, and, and also uh, with this, this, I don't know if you can call any scene in this film pivotal because they all seem to be capable of assuming meaning, but there could also be, you know, just one scene among next, among the other, as if there, it sort of, as if Simon Young defies hierarchies here within the narrative, perhaps. Uh, but later she warns the director who now, it seems, has become his own protagonist as well, as if these things collapse later, as if the narrative of Tsamin Yang and the narrative of the director sort of collapse. Then she demands him to look at her. Yeah, she does that. And here we have the opposite, right? She doesn't want her image to be seen, mm -hmm. if so, by herself. Yeah, the the thing that I thought of there is just this line that I had, that I'm altering in some sense, but just uh, the director lets themselves be taken by the object of direction. And that in this, in this moment, it's unclear who, who was the actor, who was the director, as you said. And I think it was really rather enchanting visually to see the progression to how the actor starts to refer to Xiao Kang as if he were also just Yuanakan, John the Baptist. And then that continues into the final, what one would think is the, uh, the culminating point of decapitation in the story, which is the one that's depicted in all the in all paintings that one sees in certain galleries. Yeah, even though of, here the myth itself collapses, right? Because mm -hmm. the decapitation falls together with another pivotal scene of this myth, which is the dancing scene. They all come together at this yeah. point, which is certainly a creative liberty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in 
good taste, literally, with um, with food, which elicits a different type of sensorial, perhaps, empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, a can of tomatoes, a large can of tomatoes, is opened and splayed on top of a bunch of... Oils? Yeah, like PVC foil or uh, a clear, thick transparent foil that is placed as if, if as if one is going to get a haircut around the nape but and front side like a bib an enormous bib on Xiao Kong well he lies in a bathtub basically immobile right and this is this i think is so important for this low cinema project that we see how this is done we see how she splays the tomatoes on him but once the can is moved out of the frame, we forget about that somehow. Mm-hmm. And we more and more ignore the we ignore our knowledge about the fiction of this and believe the fiction to be true. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what the what the ongoing of time sort of manages to do. It lets us forget about these things and be more immersed into these environments. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's all done through the gaze and that suspension and that whatever or however depicting one's desire is and how vague that can be in general, but then also in cinema, just the intensity with which he looks at the actor playing Zalame is, is just in the same way that we see instead now uh, in the same way that we see him looking with that s- similar intensity when he's moved, the scene that you spoke about earlier, we see that still replicated, but they share the frame as we are behind also observing this as if we too are the audience, which further reinforces this collapsing. Yeah, and and toward the end of the film, we have this mm, mo- motif seized up again about floating uh, mm-hmm. we see we see this man on this raft floating through an underground tunnel of what we must expect is the louvre but i mean we never really know but i guess we just know through our knowledge mm-hmm. and so as this sort of continues it's in keeping with this idea that our protagonist once flooded his apartment then the water went down the streets of Paris and now we are in this underground tunnel as if it has all expanded and further expanded and further expanded. And now it's mm-hmm. actually like water can- canals, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I guess just the image of the floating person is something that I will, that will sort of stick with me when I think of uh, Simon Young because he has created cinema that is so much about this this like dreamy state of mind and i think floating is the perfect translation into image of what this could look like if you think of a dreamlike state this mm-hmm. is very much floating to me yes i think that works in so many different ways because even when we think of what it is when we watch a film one is stationary one is stationary one doesn't move but the things in another sense, who you are floating, perhaps in your mind, somewhere else. I think another thing that he does often is play with walking. And to go off of the dream thing, I mean, one of the titles of the films that we... Oh, but <laughs> go off of the dream, a title of one of the films that he's 
made is I Don't Want to Sleep Alone. And I think that features in very intimate ways in his cinema in terms of entering these moments of, I mean, I'm just going off the title alone, but just being accompanied as you enter a dream state or an unconscious state, which we see the producer doing in Visage. Right, and, uh, and Jean-Pierre mm-hmm. is also mm-hmm. depicted as sleeping. And, he, and yes. there we don't even know if, well, what we see in the background, which is this sort of musical number, mm-hmm. if that is what he's dreaming in that moment, or if that is actually part of this film within the film. Uh, it's quite interesting. And when you mention other works by uh, Tsai, it's of course also, it's a dream, this film, this three-minute short mm-hmm. that he made for the Cannes Film Festival for its 60th rendition when uh, yeah, 33 directors were asked to produce a short film of, I don't know, maybe up to three or five minutes and it was all composed into one big work. And this one, again, it, so it's a dream and what do we see? We are in the theater that mm-hmm. I think we know from Goodbye... Uh, Dragon, Dragon Inn, Inn. Mm-hmm. it's the same theater. And this short film was later also expanded to an exhibition uh, that, that was shown in Venice uh, at the film festival where they actually flew in the seats of the cinema oh, uh, mm-hmm. to have this immersive experience and have actually the audience to be active while yeah, mm-hmm. being in this cinematic environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, no, just to wrap it up, I think it's very lovely what he does often just with the mind and the body and how the mind might still be very active even when the body is immobile. And when the body is called into movement through walking, which is another part of his artistic practice, he often features Xiao Kang wandering or walking through streets or enclosed spaces or just in in general just long takes on walking and it's a completely different way to explore a space to activate a space and to discover city margins and forgotten places bring, yeah, and also mm, to, to to build on our knowledge of these places as well yeah exactly and and i think one can also make the argument that in our current fast-paced, modern, high-tech world, what is walking? Walking is such a strange yet sometimes necessary oddity. Why Why choose to walk when we might have a bike, yeah. when we might have a motorbike, when we less might have a car? Less than less necessary, right? And exactly. And to engage in that is almost like a, a rebellious act. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I mean, there's a lot of philosophy about just the act of walking as well. Yeah, I think that uh, brings us to an end of uh, this film. And I I must say I'm very happy that we talked about this. I think really one has to have an open... One has to come with an openness to this film because Mm -hmm. I think it's not at all inviting. It doesn't... It's certainly one of his lesser-known films. It's uh, uh, it's less accessible. Yeah, I'm happy that we watched this because, like I said, originally when I saw this film, I thought, I'm really curious to see what Patrick will think. And I'm very happy to have given gotten the opportunity to 
forced you in some way to watch it. But I won't say that, maybe. But because it's true, amongst his other 10 films, this film is lesser known. And it's not one that comes to mind as any form of masterpiece. I don't even know where, I mean, because I have the privilege, at least personally, of not having, and not, it's not even a privilege, but just the ignorance, rather, of not having seen of the works that are deemed seminal pieces. And so I'm quite excited to explore more of his cinema later, because just from the language that he utilizes and these trance-like long durational takes and static shots and the themes that he evokes of loneliness and connection and all done in this fragmented very loose narrative his his cinematic language is boundlessly intriguing to me even though it it's true it's very difficult to to watch his cinema for that for those very reasons and one needs patience yeah and i think if i if it were not for the podcast i wouldn't have engaged in such heavy research on this and the research really made me appreciate it much more and uh, yeah I was really now I, I would say I'm even very positive on it uh, that I wasn't initially so that was also a sort of process and I, I appreciate that. I will say this also left this film left a sort of mark on cinema uh, overall and 2011, for instance, there was a conference held at uh, the University of Cambridge that was called Moving Image and Institution Cinema and the Museum in the 21st Century. And I think people like Apichat Pong, he explores this, this interstitial space of cinema and, and the gallery. And I think in the future, we might see more of that as well, uh, of his video work as well his vi video installations and i'm yeah i'm really looking forward to this i think he's one of the most fascinating most interesting filmmakers uh that are alive <laughs> mm -hmm. okay and yeah. yeah is there something else you want to say on site um just just on that note it's very interesting just when we think about the language that we use i mean we have the creation of this word that i used earlier time-based media which is often used for anything that might be either sound or video in, in or film. But there is a differentiation between what is video art and what is film and whether film is actually an art. So I wonder if that will be changed or altered or collapsed. But for Tsai Ming-liang's institutional career, it seems that, in fact, Visage was quite pivotal because it did launch him into more institutional works and more or more works that have been shown in institutional settings or gallery settings, as well as more commissions, does quite a few film festival commissions as well. Yeah, and this sort of, I think, of these sort of categories in which we think they become more and more bridged, they are more and more bridged over time. On that note... Yeah, maybe before I reveal, uh -oh. as is tradition in this podcast, the next film mm -hmm. we're going to talk about, I think just for all of you who made it up to this point, we should say that there will be a little break uh, now because I will head to Venice. I think 
you will also see a bit of the uh, Biennale this year, of the Mostra, as they call it there. And uh, that won't allow us to uh, record another podcast in two weeks. Uh, we also have to see whether it's really feasible to do this uh, every fortnight <laughs> because it requires quite a lot of research. We will try to, but we cannot at this point commit to it fully. But yeah, we will keep you posted on that. So, and the next film I am going to choose is, and this is sort of nice because we had different decades now mm -hmm. and I, uh, I'm in keeping with that tradition. My next film is Lizzie Borden's Working Girls from 1986. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Yes, I see. You had the opportunity to see this when she came to Berlin at the Arsenal and it has been on my list. Yeah, uh. Really, I'm I'm interested in films about uh, sex work as well, how this is depicted. And this is one of the rather early ones uh, in the rather early ones that pursue sort of realism uh, of that work. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to talk to you about it. So yeah, uh, thank you so much, Eliana, for doing this with me. And uh, I'll hear you soon. No, thank you too, Patrick, and see you after the film festivals. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ciao.